and expecting something miraculous, expecting to hear from God, expecting in this book to encounter not, not just words, not even just moral instruction, but to encounter somebody named Jesus Christ. If you're, just, if you're just joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we are uh, several weeks into our new series in the Gospel according to Mark, and today we will be in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, and reading all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 2, versículo 18, a capítulo 3, versículo 6. Now, the book of Mark is burdened to ask one question, namely the question, who is Jesus, which may seem like an obvious question to you for a book that recounts the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but all too often we underestimate the importance of that question or the primacy of that question in our daily lives. Who is Jesus? And in today's text, we encounter the the last three of a series of five scenes of opposition, five scenes of conflict in these early chapters in Mark. And in these final three scenes of conflict, boy, oh boy, do we learn something profound, something dramatic about who Jesus is. So, without any further ado, without speaking any longer, any more about this, let's look to God's Word and read, beginning in chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the wineskins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest." to eat, and ate 
the bread of the presence. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man, for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. These are the very words of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you, you have you've shown us something remarkable this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear. Would you turn our eyes in the direction they need to be turned and away from where they need, they need to be turned away from? Would you do a, an unexpected and gracious work in us this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before preacher, teacher, and pastor R.C. Sproul went to be with the Lord, he taught his preaching students five main steps for sermon preparation. The first of which was to read the text over and over and over and over again. The second step was to find the drama in the text. Find the drama in the text. He recognized that if what is contained in this book is really the words of God himself, then we should expect nearly every text to be filled with some dramatic impact. Now in the book of Mark, Mark moves quickly from story to story, so it's easy to miss the drama. To, to read it as, as straightforward, fairly bland religious literature. Further, the, the, the three stories he quickly relates in today's text, if not read closely, can, can easily be, be sort of passed by as religious discussions and questions and debates about fasting and Sabbath. Things that you may not be familiar with and frankly are not that interested in. But I want to help you to not read the Bible that way. To look for the drama, because these are dramatic accounts. Especially dramatic accounts. And if you're looking for the drama here, you'll find it in Jesus' eye contact. 
You'll find it in his eye contact. Now let me tell you what I mean by telling you a story of my own. Years ago, we were living in Louisville while I was at the Sovereign Grace Church's Pastors College. We'd been gone for several months, and so we were Skyping, not Zooming, because this was back in like 2013. We were Skyping our friends back home in Tucson, Arizona. There were four of them, uh, two, two couples, some, some dear friends to us. And as we're talking, uh, one of the wives says, gosh, we really miss you guys. Kelsey, I, I'd, I'd love it if, if we could see you soon. And I'm thinking like, ha, no problem. I know that she's hopping on a plane pretty soon to come and visit them. So I go, well, good news, guys. She's going to be there in a couple weeks. And meanwhile, I feel Kelsey kicking my foot. And she's trying to make eye contact with me. And I look at her, and I look her in the eyes, and she's giving me one of these looks. And I realize, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is a surprise visit for her baby shower. Dang it. <laughs> and I realize in that moment, as she's looking at me, I have messed up massively. I'm looking over here thinking like, oh, this is great. They're going to be so excited to know that she's coming to visit them. And Kelsey's just going, oh, you missed it. You utterly missed it. And the drama in this text is similar because this, the, the people that Jesus speaks to in these texts they're trying to follow God the right way. They're trying to follow God the right way, but, but, their, but their eyes are directed everywhere but the person of Jesus Christ. And he makes eye contact with them, and he reveals what they're missing. Friends, if you're trying to, to get things right as you follow God, Jesus wants to make eye contact with you this morning. Jesus wants to make eye contact. He wants you to make eye contact with him and see who he is this morning. He wants you to take your gaze away from whatever it is that's distracting you away from him, whether it's your practices, your worries, your objections, your routines, whatever it is, he wants to direct your gaze away from those and make eye contact with him and show you what in him you're missing. In this text, he reveals three magnificent things about who he is in these three stories today, three things that, that you don't see on the surface the significance of, but once we do, boy, oh boy, why would we look anywhere but Jesus himself? Those, those three things in these three stories are first, the bridegroom of God's people. Secondly, the Lord of the Sabbath. And thirdly, the bringer of rest. Those three things that we learn about Jesus. One, they form the, the, the outline of the message today, but more importantly, they teach us who he is as Mark progressively reveals the Savior to us. So, let's begin with the first in chapter 2, verse 
18. Look at verse 18. Look down there with me. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people, we don't know who they are, just common Israelites, they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, we don't know much about the disciples of John the Baptist. There's only a passing mention of them in chapter 6, verse 27. But we do know a lot about the Pharisees. And since this is the first explicit mention of them in the book of Mark, and since they, they are the opposition in the next two stories, this is a good time to introduce them. So the Pharisees, you may have some preconceived notion about who, who they are, but specifically, they, they were an extremely influential sect of religious leaders in Israel. Other, other religious sects included the Herodians, the Zealots, and the Sadducees, but the Pharisees were the largest of all of them. There were about 6,000 of them at this moment in time, and they had been in existence for about 200 years since the the Maccabean Revolt in around 160 B.C. After that, they had risen up as kind of the, the primary and most influential religious leaders in Jerusalem. And, and just to give you an idea of how strong and influential and, and adaptive they were, they were the only sect of religious leaders who survived the war with Rome in 66 to 70 AD. So, so all successive Judaism that followed the war with Rome really owes itself to Phariseeism. And the Pharisees, they, they get a bad rap. They get a really bad rap. But we have to understand that their influence centered on the Torah, on God's word. Their whole aim was to preserve the purity of God's law. That's, that's why they came into existence. In order to preserve God's law in a time when God had gone silent. So what they did have of his word, they rose up to preserve as much as they could. In fact, you might be surprised to know that Jesus stood closer to the Pharisees in his teaching than any other religious sect. Jesus and the Pharisees were uniquely devoted to the, pres- to the preservation of God's word. So devoted, though, were the Pharisees, that, that they wrote another book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a book that took the principles laid out in the Torah and then tethered them out into the specifics, hundreds of rules and regulations deep. They said, Israelites, we are going to make sure that you honor the Torah. We are going to make sure that you honor God's law. And these are the specific ways that you are going to do it. So the Mishnah was this huge book of oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation to ensure that God's people followed God's law. But... The Mishnah was not God's law. It was oral tradition. Man-made by the Pharisees. And so here here the people pose a question about fasting. Now, there was only one mandatory fast in Israel. That's it. 
One 24-hour fast every year on the Day of Atonement, Yom, Yom Kippur. You can find it in, in Leviticus chapter 16. One. But the Mishnah recommended fasts in three other situations. In, in national tragedies, for times of crisis like, like uh, famines and droughts and war. And then thirdly, for, for any, any number of self-imposed reasons. Notice, all of those have to do fundamentally with mourning. These are, these are fasting in response to grievous situations. Now, no, and I'm going to mention this multiple times, but the, the, the burden of this text is not to talk about how we should fast. Actually, that's precisely what Jesus ends up confronting. The Pharisees, they took those three recommendations and said, you know what, we're just going to make it simple. We're going to fast every Monday and every Thursday for, for 24 hours, every Monday and every Thursday. Pharisees, they fasted for 24 hours twice a week. So although a legal requirement existed in only one instance, fasting had become a requirement to show religious commitment by Jesus' day. And so Jesus is asked, hey, Jesus, how come your boys don't fast? Now, I want to look first at the second part of his response to that question. So look down at verses 21 and 22. Read, read those with me. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, I know we didn't all take home ec. I did, and I loved it. I actually won the sixth grade school cookie bake-off, make a mean chocolate chip cookie, but not nearly as good as my wife's chocolate chip cookies. Those are the best. I'll give that one to you. Uh, but if you sew a new piece of cloth onto an old piece of clothing, and then you wash it, that new patch will shrink and it will tear the piece of clothing, and it'll make a worse tear than in the beginning. Or if you put new wine, which is unfermented wine, into, into old cracked leather, that new wine will ferment and produce gases and expand. And what happens? That, that leather bag will rupture. It will break. And wine and skin are now ruined. What Jesus is saying is that he is that new wine. He is that unshrunk cloth. He's saying something new has arrived. This new thing is not an attachment or an addition to the status quo. It is not an appendage to man-made structures. It is not something to be stacked on top of the oral tradition of the Pharisees. Ha! But something altogether new. And what is this new thing? It's him. Now, look back to verse 19, the first part of his, his response, and this clarifies it. He says, can, in, in response to a question about fasting, this is, this is interesting. <laughs> he starts by saying, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Wait, I thought this was a question about fasting. 
why is Jesus talking about a wedding? Now, you have to understand, in a Jewish wedding, this wasn't like a three-hour event that people spend part of their day at. It was a seven-day party that involved the entire community, and there was singing, and there was dancing, and there was an abundance of food and wine. And attendees had one responsibility, to enjoy themselves. Nobody would have thought about fasting during a wedding. Nobody. And so Jesus says, the bridegroom is here, friends. You want to know why my disciples don't fast? Because the bridegroom is here. And listen, Jesus' self-identification as the bridegroom, it was provocative. In the Old Testament, who is Israel's husband? If you don't know, Israel's husband, according to Isaiah and, and Hosea, is God himself. And so Jesus is saying the bridegroom, the groom, is here. Commentator uh, uh, Mr. Edwards says that if, if the disciples of John and the Pharisees grasp the significance of his person, they will understand why they, they should celebrate rather than fast and mourn. Because the divine spouse of Israel is standing right in front of them in human flesh. Can you believe that? They should be celebrating and they're missing it. They're looking at what everyone else is doing and saying, Jesus, why aren't you doing what everyone else is doing? They looked at what everybody had been doing for a couple hundred years and going, Jesus, why don't you fit into that? Why haven't you come and fit into the mold of what we're all doing? But Jesus makes eye contact with them and he says, I am something new. I'm not held captive to the law because I am the law giver. I, 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 came, I came to serve the world, but I'm not held captive by the world. But while I'm here, there is no time for fasting or mourning. There is only time to celebrate. As long as I am here, my disciples and those who are around me should have Ample and unending cause for joy, not mourning. Again, James Edwards says, the question posed by Jesus' parables is not whether these men and women will make room for Jesus in their already full lives and traditions, but whether they will forsake business as usual and join this new and wonderful wedding celebration. So friend, will you forsake business as usual and join the celebration? Let me ask you this. Are you making eye contact with everything but Jesus and trying to just fit him into that and then expecting to find joy? 
Are you going through your business as usual, looking at your kids and your vacations and your hobbies and your routines and your work schedule and, and, and everything that you're doing in your life and you're saying, hey, Jesus, fit in all that where there's room. Just fit in somewhere. Make sure you fit into my priorities. Because those are the things that I'm looking at to find joy. Can you, can you just amplify that for me? Thanks. That'd be great. We're so prone to do this, aren't we? To just patch Jesus onto our lives. And then we look at our life and we wonder why it's ragged and worn out and beginning to tear. Why it's cracking and leaking. And we find ourselves going, but I'm lacking joy. I just want to be happy. When we're making eye contact with everything but Jesus, the bridegroom. Jesus says, look at me. Fill your heart with me. Fill your mind with me. Fill your vision with me. And then walk into life with me at your side. In my presence where there is fullness of joy. Start with me. Start your day in my presence. Go to work in my presence. Start your parenting in my presence. And then move on from there. Don't fit me in after the fact. Christian, if you're a Christian, let me challenge you. Once Jesus comes to dwell in your heart by his Holy Spirit, the party begins and it doesn't stop. Our lives should reflect that we live in the presence of the bridegroom. Not only is he the bridegroom, though, he's Lord of the Sabbath. And, and, and this, this might not be a familiar category for me or for, for you, but it, and, and it probably isn't, but let's, let's move on to this next story now. See this unfold with, with greater detail. These next two conflicts, okay, they're both very related. They, they both have to do, once again, with the oral tradition of the Pharisees. And they're both, this time, direct confrontations with the Pharisees. So it helps now to know who they are. They're also both related to the Sabbath. And, and as modern Western Christians, we're at a severe disadvantage approaching these two texts because we're unfamiliar with the old Jewish practice of Sabbath. But, <laughs> in, in what's known as Second Temple Judaism, in, in Old Testament Judaism, there were two things that stood at the center of Jewish religious life. Two things that defined Jews and set them apart from the nations, ceremonially and religiously. One was circumcision. The second was Sabbath. I mean, it was central to who they were. To, to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, this was the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, right? The, the, it was the one and only commandment that was rooted in and flowed forth from the creation order. God rested on the seventh day, and so because of that, because of that principle, God commanded His people to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So, 
In Jewish tradition, on the seventh day of the week, which for them was Friday, takes reorientation of our understanding of the calendar, starting on Friday at sundown, all the way to Saturday at sundown, they would rest like God rested on the seventh day. Now, the Old Testament was pretty broad in its instruction regarding how the Sabbath was to be observed. It was really simply, don't work, rest. And there was a little more specificity to that, but, but actually that was pretty much as broad as the commandment was. Remember it, keep it holy, rest, don't work. Express your dependence on God by saying, I am I'm <laughs> expendable, I'm disposable, it's God who makes things go, I'm going to rest. I'm going to experience restoration from his hand. But, again, while the Torah was very broad in this, the Pharisees in the Mishnah created 39 categories of how the Sabbath was to be observed. And then below that, hundreds of rules and regulations. And I'm not kidding, hundreds. To, to the extent that you were not allowed to sew more than one stitch on the Sabbath. You were not allowed to walk more than, is about 800 meters on the Sabbath. You were not allowed to write more than one letter on the Sabbath. If a building fell on the Sabbath, you were only allowed to remove enough rubble to see if there were any survivors under the rubble. If there was somebody who was still alive, you could rescue them. If they were dead, you had to leave the corpse until sundown on Saturday. Can you believe that? The, the, the Pharisees sought to, to answer every conceivable Sabbath question that could be asked. These weren't God's law. These were traditions of man. These were, these were human interpretations down to the nth degree. And so, in verse 23, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, and his disciples are snacking on grain because they're hungry. I'd do it. And the Pharisees say, look, Look at your disciples. Why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus could have rightfully said, listen, guys, they're, they're fishermen and a tax collector. They're not, they're not farmers. They're not working. And he would have been right. They're eating. He, he could have also said that according to Deuteronomy 23, it is lawful to pluck grain from your neighbor's field. They were, they were totally in the right. They were not violating the Sabbath at all. But he doesn't say either of those things. Instead, look at verse 25. He quotes a story from 1 Samuel 21. When King David, Israel's greatest king, he and his men went into the temple and into the tabernacle and ate bread that was set out on the Sabbath reserved for the priests. Nobody but the priests could eat them. But an accommodation was made for King David. Now, he points back to this story for two reasons, and, and here, here comes the drama of this text. First, he points that, that out to set up verse 27, in which Jesus declares, 
The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's saying, guys, the Sabbath was meant by God to be a blessing, not a burden. You have made the Sabbath to be no longer a privilege and a joy. It has ironically become more exhausting to observe the Sabbath than it is a rest. Because it's so hard to keep all of the rules and the regulations surrounding it. He says, we weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath itself isn't the goal. The Sabbath was given to us by God as a blessing to us. I tell you the story of David because they were hungry. They needed to eat. And so they ate, and God blessed that. But the second reason he points back to this story is to set up verse 28. And look at verse 28. Here's the drama. He makes eye contact with them, and he drops a bombshell. He says, the Son of Man, which is how Jesus refers to himself in Mark over and over. He says, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. My, oh my. Pastor C.J. Mahaney says, the conversation has changed rather quickly and significantly. It's no longer about what is lawful and unlawful on the Sabbath. Suddenly, it's about the identity of Jesus Christ. He, he not only dismisses their protests, but he announces himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. God himself made the Sabbath. Since now Jesus is claiming authority over the Sabbath, he is claiming to be God himself. And you can imagine the Pharisees' response. Did, did, he, just, did he just say that? Did he just say what I think he said? Since God gave the Sabbath, who else could be Lord over the Sabbath but God? And here's a connection with the story from 1 Samuel 21, and you'd better believe the Pharisees caught this connection. A provision was allowed for David, Israel's greatest king. And now one much greater than David has arrived, who certainly provision must be made for. Because not only is he greater than David, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He instituted the Sabbath. Now before we move on to the final point, here's the application. Okay, Make eye contact with Jesus and not a specific practice. Too easily the Christian life can become about upholding specific practices, upholding Rules, do's and do nots, regulations, even regulations that we set for ourselves. In fact, most commonly regulations that we set for ourselves. Not that those are bad in themselves, but when we make them the main thing, the ultimate thing, we miss making eye contact with who is the ultimate thing. Discern the difference between principle and practice. Discern the difference between principle and practice. Principle is the truth that stands behind 
every command or every practice. Okay, and this is how Paul wrote all of his epistles. This is how Peter wrote all of his epistles. Starts with principle and then moves on to practice. And if you don't have the principle, you just have an empty practice, an empty command. The, the principle, in other words, is the why behind every what. And the why is most important. Here's what I mean. Where God's word has not precisely specified a practice, there is freedom in the application of that practice. There is freedom in the application of that practice. But in every case, the principle is what is important. So with regard to the Sabbath, God didn't specify exactly how rest is to be taken on the Sabbath so the practice of Sabbath can vary. The principle of the Sabbath is that God rested on the seventh day, therefore we must rest as an expression of dependence on Him. Our eye contact must remain on God, on the Lord of the Sabbath, to understand the Sabbath rightly. And it is not my intention to get into all the questions about how Sabbath should be practiced this Sunday. That's not the point. The point is the Lord of the Sabbath. The principle which stands behind it all. So here's another example. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. The principle, with eyes on Jesus, Christ's love for the church is our model for loving our wives, right? His love for the church motivates and sets the template for our love for our wives. Now, guys, husbands, if I, if I said to you, you must have a weekly date night set aside in your schedule, and you must compliment your wife three times every day. You must be the one to take out the trash every time there's trash to be taken out. And you must be the one to do the dishes after dinner every night. And you must lead family worship in your home at least twice a week. Now, those could all be good applications, every one of them. And wives, you're probably sitting here going, yeah, they are. Really good applications. But if I were to say that every husband in every situation and every place must apply those, oh no, no, I'd be very, very wrong. And to assume that there is only one correct practice or application of, of any specific given principle in Scripture is a very dangerous thing to do. Because it risks doing what the Pharisees had done in adding to God's law. As if saying that God has said something that he has not. Another example. Make a regular practice of reading God's word because it's God's revelation of who he is and what he has done. We see over and over in Psalm 1, in, in Joshua 1, and all over the Old Testament, it is a good and right thing to to regularly, even daily, meditate on God's Word. But how and when and where and how much Scripture you should read and, and what that should look like, there's freedom in the practice. But to say you need to start your day every morning by reading at least five chapters of Scripture, it would be wrong. Or to even apply that standard on yourself and and. and sort of justify yourself by that and, and go into your day and think, gosh, if I, I didn't have daily devotion this morning, it's going to be a terrible day. I, certainly I can't have the blessing of God if that's the case. Now, I am advocating for rich and robust disciplines of the Christian life, but 
to look to the practice before the principle risks taking your eyes off of Jesus. Teach your children in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ because he is their only hope. There's the principle. Yes, you should raise your kids in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whether you homeschool, public school, do family worship nights, pray with them before bed, it's up to you. But don't take your eyes off of Jesus and forget the principle that stands behind the practice. Don't make it about the practice. Personally, I like to plan my whole week every Monday morning, first thing I do when I, when I wake up. The principle that stands behind that is to make the most of every moment because the days are evil. But that's just my particular application for me to say, you should all do that. And say that with any weight of authority behind that would be wrong. Be careful to distinguish between principle and practice. I could go on for days. In small group leaders, this is a great discussion topic. So lest I continue going four days, let's look now at the, the last scene here. Jesus clarifies what kind of a Lord the Lord of the Sabbath is, and he reveals himself to be. His third and final point, the bringer of rest. The bringer of rest. This, this story ends with what it ends by pointing forward to, to what does justify us. It ends with pointing forward to what, why, why Jesus is a reason for celebrating. So this, this story, this is a very different setting. It's the last story. Last story, you have disciples joyfully walking through a field, snacking on grain. This story it's more ominous. It's more somber. Very formal and serious synagogue gathering is taking place. It's another Sabbath, and the Pharisees are watching two people. Speaking of eye contact, they've got their eyes focused on two people. First on Jesus, and secondly on a man with a withered hand, so a, probably a, a pretty awfully deformed hand that was not useful. They had their eyes on Jesus First, to catch him. So they're making eye contact with him, but for the wrong reasons. But they're making eye contact with the man with the withered hand in the midst of this, this big synagogue gathering, and they're, they're watching him. Because one, they know that Jesus has the power to heal. He's demonstrated that. They don't have any qualms with that, but they are threatened by it. Two, though, they know that Jesus moves toward the suffering and the broken with compassion. And so they see him and they say, I think Jesus is going to do something. I think he's going to violate the Sabbath right here. Notice, look at verse 3. Jesus initiates this conflict. Once again, he perceives what's in their heart. And he looks at this man and he says, come here. This man has no clue what's about to happen. He did not wake up and come to synagogue thinking that attention was going to be brought to him. If, if you know anybody who has a deformity, you'll, you'll know they don't want attention. They're, they're already, they've already had enough of the uncomfortable stares that their deformity draws, and they just want to, to hang in the background and not have any more attention being brought to it. And yet here Jesus is in the midst of all these people saying, 
and he comes. And Jesus makes eye contact with the Pharisees. Look down to verse 4. And he says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? What will it be, fellas? What's more in keeping with the Mosaic law? What's more in keeping with Torah? To do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? What will it be? look back at him and there's silence and Jesus heart is filled with anger righteous anger righteous anger that's that's not sullied by pride and self-interest it's filled with anger mixed with grief and look at look at look at verse 5 and he looked at them with that anger and grief in his heart Can you imagine what that must have been like for the Savior to look at those guys and to see their hardness of heart and to see, as Tim Keller says, that the Pharisees' hearts are as withered as the man's hand. And he looks at them and then he looks back down at the guy and he says, stretch out your hand. And he takes his hand in his hands and miraculously and immediately restores it to full functionality. You can be sure that this anxious, self-conscious, suffering man ended that Sabbath day with more rest in his heart than he had begun that Sabbath day. Friends, the Lord of the Sabbath brings healing and rest to the weary and the suffering. Jesus clarifies what it means that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority over the Sabbath, but authority to bring a kind of rest that the people have not yet known. That's what Jesus is showing here. And it all points forward to something greater. The healing of the man with a withered hand, it points forward to a greater rest. A greater restoration through a cross. And Jesus foreshadows his own crucifixion in two points in this text. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken. Notice he doesn't say in chapter 2, verse 20, that the bridegroom will leave. He says, no, when the bridegroom is taken from you. And then you will have reason to mourn, to fast. And then here in verse 4, <laughs> which is better, to save life or to kill? And Jesus knows their hearts. He knows what they are about to do in chapter 3, verse 6, which was to leave that place and go and conspire with another religious sect, the Herodians, which they were the ones who arrested John and eventually beheaded John. And Mark even says, they left immediately and went to conspire. So they left, catch this, on the Sabbath. The Pharisees fancied themselves guardians of the Sabbath, yet they conspired on the Sabbath to do harm, to kill. Friends, eventually the Lord of the Sabbath would make his way to a hill 
called Calvary. And on that hill, he would hang suspended between heaven and earth and would bear the full fury of God's wrath for our sin as he hung on a cross. He would die as our sinless substitute to provide, and get this, to provide the rest that only he can provide. Hebrews 4.9 says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is the very Sabbath rest that the Lord of the Sabbath had come to bring. Rest from trying to save ourselves with our own adherence to our own rules. Rest from trying to add anything to our acceptance before God. Rest from trying to make ourselves good enough to be joyful. Good enough to be accepted by God. Good enough to be satisfied in this life. Rest. Soul rest. In fact, one of the reasons that the, the, the right application of these passages is not to talk about what, how to fast correctly and how to, how, to, how to practice Sabbath correctly is because Jesus has become our Sabbath rest. The Sabbath pointed forward to Jesus, who is himself our rest. So, we do respond appropriately this morning to these texts by honoring him as Lord of the Sabbath, by receiving the gift of salvation that he has provided, and by resting in his finished work. He has provided the rest that we desperately need. The, the appropriate response is to turn our eyes away from our own obedience and good works as a means of acceptance before God, as a means of justifying ourselves, as a means of sanctifying ourselves as a means of getting ahead in this life before God. Now, friends, the bridegroom came as a brand new way to save us from our sin and its consequences. Not to inform us how we can save ourselves or make any contribution to our salvation whatsoever. This morning, the appropriate response is to, by faith, make eye contact with him and never lose it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you sent something new in your Son. That you, just, you didn't just send another iteration of your law. You didn't send more rules within that law. You didn't send more, more judges and religious leaders to uphold that law. You sent someone to fulfill that law in himself, your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you, you have made a way for us to rest. Lord, there's much that we can take from, from these passages. And I pray that you would, you would work on each of our hearts to know how you would change us, how 
you would have us respond to this, in what way we need to make eye contact with your son, Jesus Christ. Would you do that by your spirit? Amen.